retest earlier and more often big summative high stakes tests than any other country on the planet. And the average child before they go to college has had 112 high stakes summative determinative tests in their life. Tests where everybody's been told their life depends on it. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Before we get started, I've been getting emails lately from uh, fans of the show, and I could not be more grateful, especially when those emails end with, how can I help? So here's my ask to all of those who might be inclined. Do keep the emails coming because I so appreciate them. But you can also go back to wherever you downloaded this podcast, rate, review the podcast, and show your love in that way. It helps more people to find our show through the platform where you downloaded and helps us continue to gather listeners and support for the show. Thank you for that. This is a really special episode of No Such Thing. A week ago, I had the privilege and honor of hosting the one and only Kathy Davidson and Temateo Fagbenle, who is a senior at Queens College, in a conversation about Kathy's new book, The New Education. My special thanks to CUNY School of Professional Studies and our friends at CUNY Tech Meetup. I couldn't be more grateful for your hosting, the audio engineering, and all the amazing setup for the event. We had a conversation about Kathy's new book, and she is someone who has a lifetime of work in education reform, and I cannot encourage you uh, enough to read this book. Don't use the show as cliff notes, but if you have to, if this is the only thing you do, I do hope you'll listen to the show and enjoy some of the ideas that come out of this conversation. For those who want to skip past Dean John Mogulescu's introduction to Kathy, we also hear from Sarah Zeller Berkman, uh, who just gives a warm welcome to everyone in the audience. Uh, if you want to skip past all of that and get right to the inter interview, by all means, you can do that. Uh, scroll forward to 11 minutes and 45 seconds. At the end of the show, Kathy leads a think-pair-share, one of the many... Uh, ways that she brings active learning into all of the classes that she teaches. I leave um, some, some gaps in the audio so that you don't have to listen to uh, us getting together to talk or write. I really hope you enjoy this show. It is a very, very special one to me. My thanks once again to Kathy Davidson and Temi Fekbenle for all of your time on it. Welcome. Um, we're going to get started. I know we'll have some other people coming in. Um, my name is Sarah Zeller Berkman, and I am the academic director of the Youth Studies Program at the CUNY School of Professional Studies. Um, I'm thrilled to welcome everybody to Revolutionizing Higher Education, an interview slash mm -hmm, live podcast recording conducted by Mark Lesser and Temitayo Fagbenle with Kathy Davidson about her latest book, The New Education. Yeah. Woo. Okay. Let's get some energy. All right, we're going to have Dean Mogilescu introduce Professor Davidson and her impressive, I'll say that again, impressive list of accomplishments um, shortly. But I just want to give you a sense of why we at the Youth Studies Program are so excited about this event, as well as give you a sense of our other two presenters for tonight. 
So Kathy Davidson has been working at the intersection of youth development and technology for the last decade at least. Um, her push for youth-centered, participatory, and strength-based 21st century learning resonates strongly with a positive youth development approach used by those in, in our field, in the field of out-of-school time. Um, <clears throat> for those working in technology-based youth development programs, Kathy's name is synonymous with her pioneering work that she launched and supported through Haystack. And for those of you who don't know, Haystack is an international organization that Kathy co-founded dedicated to rethinking the future of learning for the information age. Um, once again, Dean Mogulescu will tell you a lot more about Kathy, um, but I'll, I'm gonna tell you a bit about Mark Lesser and Temitayo Fagbenle. So Mark is one of those stellar youth development professionals whose work with young people really embodies the call to action um, that Kathy Davidson has issued. He is a specialist in the fields of digital learning and youth development with broad experience in local and national contexts. Um, he is currently Senior Director for Learning Design at MOUSE, a Youth Studies Fellow at CUNY SPS, and produces and hosts the No Such Thing podcast. In 2012, Mark was named a National School Board Association 20 to Watch among national leaders in education and technology, and he is co-founder of NYC's largest youth media and technology festival, Emoticon. We have felt really privileged um, in the Youth Studies Master's Program to have Mark as an adjunct professor and fellow who has now produced 22 episodes of his remarkable podcast on learning and technology. Mark is accompanied today by Queens College student and award-winning youth journalist for WNYC's radio rookies, Temitayo Fagbenle. Temitayo began as a youth reporter with WNYC's Radio Rookies in 2012. Um, she started out by reporting a multimedia story about stop and frisk policing in public housing on the Lower East Side and went on to report about youth violence, police brutality, and sexual cyberbullying. She reported an award-winning documentary about slut-shaming and hosted two online live chats where over 300 young people and educators were able to talk about the issue, as well as hosted a teen town hall with over 100 teens in attendance. So thank you two for being here. I'm going to turn it over to John Mogulescu, founding dean of the CUNY School of Professional Studies and senior university dean for academic affairs, to give you a better sense of our guest of honor, Kathy Davidson. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Sarah. It's so good to see everybody. We have kind of a full house here to, tonight, which is, which is fabulous. Um, I'm going to be very brief, and, and just one, I want to thank Mark and, and Sarah for organizing this event, and particularly because Sarah has created the Youth Studies Program and built it and seen it grow. Uh, she's an amazing educator. We're lucky to have her at the School of Professional Studies, so I just want to thank you, Sarah, for all you've done. Um, and I'm delighted to introduce Kathy. And Kathy's, if you ever have seen Kathy's bio, it really goes on forever. And I am not, because we want to get to, to this, this show. Uh, I'm, I'm simply going to say she's an incredible educator, an innovator, a distinguished professor. She's a fearless advocate. Uh, she's really not afraid to push the boundaries of higher ed. And she's always had to, uh, creating the best possible learning environment for students as her goal. Um, she's a avid proponent of active ways of learning that helps students to understand and navigate kind of the radically changed world in which we now all live, work, and learn. Now a little bit about some of her accomplishments. 
Kathy's a distinguished professor of English and founding director of the Futures Initiative at the Graduate School here at CUNY, and the R.F. Devarney Professor Emeritor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Duke, where she had been for many years prior to coming to CUNY, also the first vice provost for interdisciplinary studies. Uh, in 2010, President Obama nominated her to a six to a six-year term on the National Council on the Humanities, position confirmed by the Senate in July 2016, serves on the Board of Advisors to the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Digital Media and Learning Book Series, a former president of the American Studies Association, former editor of the Journal of American Literature. Um, she's written, I don't know how many books, 20 or so of, uh, books that she's written and edited in this newest book, which we'll be discussing today, The New Education, How to Revolutionize the University, Prepare Students for a World in Flux, Timely and Provocative, called an inspiring and well-researched and compelling manifesto for a revolution in learning and teaching by Tony Wagner, author of The Global Achievement Gap and Creating Innovators. And she's been praised in the New York Times, the Washington Post, this book, and Kathy together, and other prestigious uh, uh, publications. And a little bit of a personal note, um, I'm enormously flattered that I'm kind of uh, part of this book in some small way, and, and I, I greatly appreciate that. So uh, please join me in welcoming Kathy and, uh, and the panel. Kathy, um, so I have like 400 questions, <laughs> and we're going to cover them all. So everybody, buckle up. Um, we're not. I don't want to go in. In it, it, linear didn't feel like you, so I, I figured we'd jump around. Perfect. I do think, though, that we have to kind of start with the central character of the book, uh, and that's Charles Eliot. Mm. Um, and so um, my question is, who was Charles Eliot? And specifically, what is the sort of residue from Charles Eliot's vision that Temi and her peers are still bumping into now more than 100 years later? So Charles Eliot was a young professor of theoretical chemistry at Harvard at a time when it was expected that you didn't really get paid very much because you had a family income. Your father was a professor at Harvard or a, a, a graduate of Harvard. You were independently wealthy. It was a gentleman's profession. He never thought he'd have to have a job in any way. He could just be doing his work, kind of just doing it, but didn't have to earn an income. Then his father lost everything in the Panic of 1857, uh, which was the world's first global financial panic. And suddenly he had to think about how to support himself. So there was a number of things that was interesting about that. One, the rest of the world blamed America for the Panic of 1857, because they said America had become this huge industrial power, inventing technology all over the place, and the technology had grown far faster than America's ability to educate its own citizens to the proper use, management, control of that technology. Sound familiar? I mean, we're basically in that era now. Just to go very quickly, Elliot. Um, had a, luckily for him, I guess, uh, a grandfather died and left him enough money to go for two years to Europe, and he studied the great um, modern Humboldtian universities in Berlin and in France to figure out what American colleges should look like. At the time, in a Puritan college, you mostly were learning Latin and Greek. You were being trained to be a minister 
at a time when only 10% of Harvard students and other elite students were actually going into the ministry. So there was a big mismatch between this Puritan college that had been inherited and this world that, for example, invented the Morse code and the Morse code was transmitting the news of the of collapses of one financial market after another faster than anybody knew how to contain what was going on. So it was a, a world that needed some control. Eliot wrote an essay called The New Education, which is the same title as my book, in 1869, in which he lambasted American education, all of it at the time, and said we needed to start over. He at that time was 34 years old, Harvard had gone through three presidents in a quick succession. And they called him up and said, how would you like to be the president of Harvard at 34, youngest president in Harvard's history? He said, sure. And for 40 years, he was not only the president of Harvard, but he and his friends remade everything about higher education. I don't have the list in front of me, but I think I can do some of them. Uh, majors, minors, divisions, professional school, graduate school, nursing school, law school, uh, collegiate law school, first business school, uh, grades, entrance exams, um, uh, the application of multiple choice exams in higher education, uh, a list that goes on and on and on. And I don't ever have to explain to anybody what's on that list because it's exactly the situation that you have it. Distribution requirements, uh, basic two years of sort of general education before you go into a major, minors, all of these features that we've inherited were created by Eliot and his friends who managed to populate just about every university in America, including the land-grant colleges, including community colleges, um, to make a new professional managerial class for the era of the Model T and the Telegraph. Right? Um, they also, at the same time, they're involved in creating all of the systems of accreditation that say how all of these universities are going to be ranked. So even though Joliet College, the first community college, junior college it would have been called then, and Michigan State, uh, one of the land-grant colleges, are very different in purpose, mission, design, students than Harvard, they're being ranked by a system that's designed to put Harvard number one and everybody else below that. That worked in a world of the Model T, where, right? Do you remember what Henry Ford said about um, Model Ts? You can get it in any color you want as long as it's black, right? It's the world of mass production, automation, uh, uh, the, the, the agglomeration of companies into um, corporations, massive global corporations. Um, if there's a project of the 19th century, it's to train farmers to be factory workers and shopkeepers to be corporate executives, right? That was what Eliot's university was designed to do. And all of the, he also was head of the Committee of Ten, which came up with the rules for what um, K through 12 would look like in America. I mean, this is an incredible, 40 years, tremendously, tremendously powerful educator for his time. That's the university that you are go you're going to now. It's the university I went to. It's the university everybody in this room went to. And my argument is we need a new education for our world, that our world changed hugely. Um, uh, and I don't know if you want to interrupt with another question or if I should talk about the, what happened on April 22nd, 1993. I'm going to get, I'm going to get okay. the, the new, new education is in order, is, is sort of your, your argument. Um, I'm glad you mentioned K-12. 
part of the purpose of uh, my being here and hosting and the show um, is that we're representing a, a field of folks who are you know, amazing and talented educators in informal spaces and formal spaces um, who are very much on the front lines of this issue of putting young people on a pathway um, and we think sending them into uh, a, a future that's going to help them mm. uh, to realize their passion and what's going to motivate them to help solve the problems of our time, improve their communities, find prosperity. Um, and and I, I, for one, would agree that um, we need to be critical about the idea that um, there's uh, only one solution, and it was, and we came up with it over 100 years ago. Temi is here uh, in part because part, one of the themes of our show is that uh, I don't like to talk about what's good for young people without young people in the room. And uh, I know Temi from uh, many years back when she was part of our emoticon uh, event. She came up through a program called Radio Rookies and has done amazing things uh, in journalism. You're now a junior at Queens College studying political philosophy. I'm studying political science and economics, and technically I'm a senior, but really I'm a <laughs> So the other reason that Temi's here is because uh, she shoots straight. Uh, and that's really, that's really uh, so important to this conversation, because we're going to talk about the purpose of, of higher education. But uh, Temi, this question is for you. I'm curious for uh, this audience to hear how your perspective about the purpose of college has changed in these three years. And if you could tell us a little bit about your parents and their perspective, which uh, you are a first-generation American, they are Nigerian and have maybe a different perspective than yours. Right. So my parents, um, being from Nigeria, they have always thought of higher education as simply a means to a highly educated, highly trained professional job, right? To be a lawyer, to be an engineer, to be a doctor. Um, and I have always loved school, so I've always thought of education as um, something to build your brain, right? Something to, to make, mold you into a better person. Um, however, after three years of college, I have realized that is absolutely not the case. Um, and so there, there is really no emphasis sort of on learning, right? It's more pass this test. And I can confidently say that I do not remember anything that I have learned in the past three years, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, but I completely agree. You know, education needs to be reformed. There is no emphasis on um, learning. It's really about churning out cogs to a machine. Way back in the 1880s, a German experimental psychologist named Hermann Ebbinghaus did some of the first experiments on what he called the forgetting curve. And basically, he found that if you're studying for a I mean, he did, there are many variations on it, and I'm, I should, other people have re taken his insights and applied them in other ways. But the basic insight of the forgetting curve is if you're told that you're studying for a specific purpose, and a final exam is the most specific purpose you could have, within a week, 
One week after that exam, you lose about 75% of the actual content you were tested on for the exam. Um, you know, so it's very interesting that we put so much weight on testable outcomes when we've had over, well over 100 years of telling us that if, if you say the objective is the testable outcome, what you're doing is you're, you're training people how to forget. Right. Right? And what you remember, and we know this from anything else we learn outside of school, what you remember is the things that mean something to you. And that's true whether you're writing code or, or anything you're learning. If something catches your attention and captures your interest, you go deep and you find ways that it makes meaning in your life, whether it's intellectual meaning, social meaning, personal meaning, and you use that over and over again and it grows. Um, one of my favorite experiments recently um, that I heard about was people, ethnographers, standing in the foyer of TED Talks that got standing ovations mm. where people came out and said, this talk changed my life. Right. And they asked really like 10 questions that were the most basic questions. Most people got half the questions wrong. These were people who said, that talk a minute ago changed my life. They didn't remember the basics because that's how memory works. We grasp onto, the, you know, something amazing happens that says, you say, wow. That just solved a, mm. that solved a, that was a great talk. Now I understand. You don't remember other things. You focus on, think about walking down a street. I mean, I've now lived in New York for three years and I walk down my block several times a day. I guarantee there's a house, an apartment next to mine that I couldn't tell you what the door looked like. I, and we all have that. That's how attention works. Uh, Ebbinghaus basically, one of the other Ebbinghaus things is about, in a general world when we're not forced to pay attention, maybe we get 1%, maybe we get 8% of what the data is. We're constantly sorting the world. We're constantly being, being selective. But education is based on an idea that the selection is for a test, for a grade, for a diploma. The kind of education that I'm talking, and that's very much the world of Charles Eliot, because he's influenced by Taylor. He's influenced by the great people that are measuring what is productivity. Mm. How fast can one worker take a wheelbarrow full of pig iron 30 feet at the beginning of the day, and how fast can they do at the end of the day, and how can you make that regular through the day? How do you make humans into machines? Mm -hmm. It's not how we learn. It's just not how we learn. And uh, it's certainly not how we remember. Right. You, you say, so a quote from the book, uh, Eliot's university has had a good long run, yet it no longer prepares young people for the conceptual, epistemological, economic, intellectual, and social demands of the complex and often disturbing world we live in today. Yeah, and I wrote that before the election. <laughs> yes, right? you did. Which whatever one thinks about the result of the election, why aren't we in a panic that we're a democratic system and we might have had our elections hacked? Mm -hmm. Why isn't that a global crisis, right? This year at DevCon, um, you know, every year uh, developers get together at a huge convention in Las, Las Vegas and they always have one thing that hackers can just mm, have fun with. And this year, they got to put Diebold voting machines there. 90 minutes, there was nothing. People had never seen the Diebold code, either face-to-face -face or through remotely cracking. There was nothing in those Diebold machines that people hadn't hacked into. Mm. You know, they were, they were electing Daffy Duck president. They were changing Democratic to Republican voters. They were changing everybody's information in incredibly goofy and not always um, uh, proper ways. Um, 
90 minutes. Why isn't that a crisis? We are not preparing any, and it's not just students. None of us are prepared for the world we're living in. Mm. Right? We're living in a world that is insanely out of control in the most fundamental ways. Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin the key to the future? Or is it all going to collapse? Nobody knows, right? We know one that Bitcoin takes as much energy as the country of Denmark. What does that mean? That we have a currency that just to run it, to run the currency, mm -hmm. uh, we're using that much environmental effort. Right? I mean, we have a very, very complicated world. And did you study about any of that in school? Bitcoins, yes. You did? Oh, good. <laughs> good. Good. Did they tell you what it is and how to do it? Yes, and how I, to invest I, in I it? Have, I have a little bit of a. You have a Bitcoin? You got some Bitcoin? Bitcoins. Excellent. Good You're job. Early, early in on Bitcoin. Yes. Good. Good, good job. Was that in an economics class? No, um, I, I bought some Bitcoins because, I don't want to admit this, but I, I bought some things off the dark web. Oh. <laughs> we didn't hear that. Ed edit yes, that edit. out. Edit that out. Um, so, yeah, so we learned about Bitcoins. Um, I would say that most of my information um, about technology has just come from independent research. Yeah. So there isn't really an emphasis on um on this sort of education in school. Yeah. Um, Timmy, you said uh, to me at one point, um, well, you shared for one that uh, you've been the sort of uh, beneficiary of um, the, the system as it is in K-12 in that you were a great student and were sort of rewarded in that system. But, but your, your quote, uh, the first time we talked, was I think that me and a lot of the young people of my generation uh, are, were in for a rude awakening. That was the phrase that you used. Why, why do you think that? Well, um, so growing up, uh, I was, I think the term was a, a gifted child. Mm. So um, I was always placed in magnet classes. Um, I scored very highly on standardized tests, uh, what else? But th I, I think the thing I, I, I think about the most when I think about um, grades K through 12 is what it did to the students who weren't placed in magnet classes. Um, and I remember uh, very clearly students saying things like, well, it doesn't really matter because I'm in the dumb class, so it doesn't matter if I fail because, like, you know, when you put, when you put students in a class and they know this, that they're, they're sort of set up to fail, they, they internalize these things, and it's something that they carry with them for the rest of their lives. Um, and for me, when I went into college, which was a very sort of different um, thing for me, I, I failed my first class ever, and I had, that had never happened, right? I had never failed a class. I had never struggled in school. Um, I never really learned how to study until I got to college. Um, and so it, it was a really hard, it was a really difficult um, learning curve that I went through um, when I started university. You talked about um, mental health. Yeah. And to the extent that you're, it's uh, comfortable to talk about it. You, you mentioned it as something you've noticed among friends of yours who have been through that. Um, are you comfortable about yeah, sharing no. more about that? Um, there's so many people um, that I know, so many friends of mine who uh, within their first, second years, um, I think, I don't know, 
if any of you are currently in school now, everyone knows midterms, finals, like people start actually breaking down. Like not like, oh, um, oh, she's a little bit stressed right now. It's like people really start, you know, losing their minds and it's really unhealthy, right? And some people really can't handle it. I know um, in recent years, uh, schools have been having to spend uh, millions of dollars on mental health infrastructure for students um, because like, I think the, the suicide rate amongst um, people in university is just going up and it's horrible, right? There, there isn't anything to support us. And I know in, in the book you mentioned the ASAP program, which I think is amazing, by the way. Um, and I actually have a friend who's, who benefited. Tell us, tell us about, I'm sorry to interrupt you, tell us about what the ASAP program okay, so is. The, the ASAP program, if you guys don't know what that is, um, it, I, I forgot what the acronym stands for, I'm sorry. Um, but, I can never remember either. Is John still here? <laughs> is he? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, so the ASAP program, I think, is only available in community colleges. Um, and so, it, uh, yeah, okay. All right, well, I, there's ASAP and then there's SEEK, which are similar. Um, but, but ASAP, um, it, I think it was specifically made for um, the community colleges here in the CUNY system. should be at every college. Yes, it should be. But I have a friend who went to BMCC, failed out um, because he had mental health issues, um, and then came back, was put in the ASAP program, and now has a 4.0 GPA. Right, he got a metro card. He he got counseling. He had people to speak to, um, and I think that has really changed the way he has um, the way he's learned. Right, he's learning more. He's retaining more. So you you talk about this in the book, Kathy. That one of the things that um, community colleges uh, and public universities are are doing that others aren't is realizing some of these um, these small areas that are making the difference for young people between getting to school or not. It's the Metro card, it's the services. Um, say, say more about that. Sure, so to go back to the Charles Elliott example, the, one of the really horrible things about a system of accreditation where every university is judged by the top universities, is you then miss who the different students are that you're trying to serve. So people will talk about the 97% graduation rate at a place like Harvard where students, well, I taught for many years at a place like that where uh, two weeks into the semester, I would get a call, how are your freshmen doing? And if I didn't answer that call, someone would come to my office to see how the freshmen are doing. These were students who were not working. These were students who came from the best possible kinds of education, and there were people looking after that. Many, many universities don't have that kind of attention to students who have none of those resources. One of the things that's amazing about ASAP, and I think all of our universities should have that, is this rapid response attention to advising that is not just about how well you do in school, but it's what one of my colleagues, Candace Chu, says, it attends to the people in our classrooms who are students. And I love that formulation 
because it reminds us, it's not students in your classroom. These are people with complex lives and problems and issues and dependencies and responsibilities in their lives all the time. And they're also students. Mm. So what ASAP does is things like, um, and John will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe short-term loans, if your, check to, if your Pell check doesn't come one month, which if your family makes $300,000 a year, that shouldn't, that, well, you're not even on Pell in that case. But there are certain situations where a small difference is not a small difference. It's the difference between survival um, and non-survival. Or the metro cards that are provided to students. It can be the difference between you eating or not eating. And if it's a difference between you having lunch uh, or dinner or breakfast um, or walking to class or not going to class, those are all vulnerabilities that are taken into account. Um, another thing I love about ASAP, and many universities are picking this up, most recently Yale and its history department, is the cohort model, where everybody who starts at a certain time takes one class at least where they're in a group with their cohort and able to have all of the social aspects of learning help them to learn as they're advancing mm. forward. That's, that's very different than the famous core model where everybody for 50 years has to read the same Shakespeare play and the same Thucydides text and the same um, novel by, I don't know who, Dickens. It's, what it's about is realizing that in your group and in your cohort, you can help each other get to a goal together. That is invaluable. And that, that works. We've got lots of research on that. And again, it's, that one is true in any place. If you want to study for an exam, come up with, with a cohort, a study group, and work together and help encourage each other and find the right mix of people that can inspire you to go forward. So those are things that are both about the classes. There's also streamlinings. There's also things like classes offered at times where people who have full-time jobs or have kids where, for which they need childcare can take the classes. So it's attending to, again, the whole student um, and making college possible for that whole student rather than saying, this is what college looks like and you have to adapt yourself to that system. Right. Of course you're gonna have a high, high dropout rate um, if, that's, if that's what the system is. Because yeah. if you're living marginally, you don't have room to adapt. Yeah. You don't, ad adaptation means lack of not not making it yep so with with the the mental health observation that Temi made in mind and you you wrote a chapter of the book is actually called the quarter life crisis um, and I'm curious whether in your mind these things are connected the yeah. sort of this lasting residue from Elliot's vision um, Temi's experience now is that uh, part of what yeah. You're observing in the quarter-life crisis? So um, Elliott's University is basically an output-oriented university where you measure learning by certain kinds of scientific metrics. Remember, this is the era where the IQ test gets invented. It was not originally invented to be some genetic test. It was supposed to be a test that helped decide who in France would or wouldn't go on to French University and who needed extra help. But very quickly got made into this eugenic idea that somehow it was about you. Are you a success? Are you smart? Or are you a failure? So you're one of the lucky ones who was considered a success. And I think it's so unusual that somebody who's one of the lucky ones also was paying attention to the unlucky ones around them. It's really a huge um, compliment to you as a person that you notice that. Because uh, around you are people 
that were very smart, and I'm sure you knew they were smart, they weren't necessarily academic. I personally think the situation we have now not only is outcomes oriented, but every year gets more and more frenetically panicked in its outcome oriented orientation, partly because we're living in a world where we all feel out of control. So we feel like if our kids don't do well on tests, they don't go to the best schools, they're going to fail. Oh my God, they're going to fail. I actually think we're subjecting kids now to a kind of child, a child abuse, that, that K through 12 education is abusive. And the tests and the studying for high stakes, the average child before going to college has had 100 in, in America has had a hundred, we test earlier and more often big summative high stakes tests than any other country on the planet. And the average child before they go to college has had 112 high stakes summative determinative tests in their life. Tests where everybody's been told their life depends on it. That's child abuse and it's not about learning. That's a terrible, terrible way of restricting who is smart. Also, and I do like Carol Dweck's idea about um, fixed mentalities versus growth mentalities because so much of our summative testing says you, not that you failed an exam. The F didn't exist, by the way, before 1888. The uh, grades didn't exist and the F didn't exist. It was A, B, C, D and oh my God, Mount Holyoke that invents grading says, well, we can't give people E's because people might think that means excellent, so we'll give them F's. Someone says, A, B, C, D don't stand it for anything, right? F, that's failure. Suddenly there's this whole science that happens once the F gets invented for what a failure is, what an intellectual failure is. That's horrible to think about kids. Failing a test should be the beginning of learning, right? It is every place else. But in formal education, it means you're a failure. That, that is abusive. That's, that's one of the reasons we're in such a crisis of mental health right now, um, where every institution has had to have more and more mental health um, caretakers on campus because we're subjecting students to an incredible kind of life pressure. It doesn't stop with college. So the, the first, there's so much that uh, you just said that I want to come back to. Um, <laughs> Don't fail me, brain, memory. Um, the first time that, that you and I met, or I met you, I should say, because I was sort of one in a sea of folks <laughs> at Duke, uh, Kathy was giving a lecture to a room about this size, and uh, she was the first person I ever heard make the connection between standardized tests and the meatpacking industry. Mm. Um, yes, do, do you want to say so something about Mount that? Holyoke is the, decides it's going to be a modern university, and it's the first first uh, institution of higher education that's going to go from long discursive written out um, responses to students writing that are done in discussion and dialogue with students to modern output oriented grading A, B, C, D and as I just said F because everyone was worried about the E's and when you go back to the archives there are people worrying about oh my gosh we can't give somebody an E that could be, miscon that could be misconstrued. The second major organization to adopt A, B, C, D, F grading is the American Meatpackers Association. If you go to the archives of the American Meatpackers Association, what are they arguing about? Not the E or the F, but how could you reduce something as complex as sirloin or chuck to something as simplistic as an A, B, C, D, F grading? So to this day, I, I, I don't know if it's to this day, at least five years ago when we met, when I was doing research on that, I interviewed some meat inspectors. And at least five years ago, and I assume that's still the case, 
Every piece of meat travels with its metadata. Metadata is a computer science term for all the, the, da the data behind any kind of an emblem or representation. So if there's an A rating on meat, you can actually find out who the individual meat inspector was who gave that piece of, piece of meat an A, why they did, what kinds of grades they give in general, and what the rationale was. You actually can find that information. Meanwhile, education just chucked that, except at a very, chucked, ah, that was a pun, <laughs> except at a very few places, and went to ABCDF grading as if that was science, mm. right? Think about, imagine if you have a two-year-old learning to walk. Oh, you fell. Not so good. C minus today, right? We know that's a disincentive, right? Those are not, that is not how you incentivize learning anywhere else except in formal education. And it's not incentivizing, it's negative, <laughs> brutalizing, um, and making, I'm, so you were a great student. I was the opposite. I got kicked out of every school I ever went to. Um, I wasn't diagnosed as dyslexic till I was in my 20s. And my first teaching job, my um, colleague who hired me, the only other woman in my department, said she was taking her six-year-old daughter to be tested because she was very smart but was doing badly and couldn't, couldn't read out loud. And my friend Linda said, why don't you come with us and see what the tests are like? And people used to always say Andrea and I were like, well, Linda knew what was going on. And sure enough, it was a, I always say it's the first test I ever got 100 on. I mean, I was so off the charts dyslexic. And it made sense then why I was this little math geek who loved math but couldn't add and read at a very early age but still I still can't read out loud if I'm giving them a in my profession you're supposed to stand there and read to people I hate I hate hearing talks that way and for me that means practicing maybe 20 30 times so it's almost memorized by the time I read it because I still can't really read out loud so I was the kid who didn't succeed and who, or succeed in a quirky way. Um, and if I'd been a student now, I don't think I would have gone to college. Mm. That, that makes me so sad. So what do you think was different? Um, I think so we've gotten go more outcome oriented. Yeah. I've got, we've gotten far more test oriented. Um, we've gotten far more concerned about results and measurable results, not only for students, but for teachers. I mean, many, many school districts across the country, teachers can be fired or de given demerits or not given in salary increases if their students don't do well on tests. So what do you do then? You make sure the students who do badly on tests fail, get, aren't in school anymore, right? It's an incentive to get rid of students who don't test well in order that your, your average of the students who stay in school can do better on the tests, so you know it's a terror. It's a horrible system. We will change it because I think most people are feeling like it's a it's a bad system. I know very few kids or parents who say, "Boy, education today is great." Mm. Right. So, so um, I want to take that and shift a little bit, but I want to summarize before I do because uh, this is a really important point. You. Uh, our point in talking about the meatpacking industry is hopefully, obviously, not that uh, there's a correlation between students and meat. Um, but that there isn't. <laughs> yeah. But that there isn't. <laughs> right. And that the assessment strategies and practices for the meatpacking industry uh, actually has more dimension 
uh, more layers to it. Uh, we look more critically at the entire journey of that meet than we do uh, for a student yeah. who's come out of K-12 uh, and coming into the college system. Um, you mentioned the word metadata. And um, I want to play devil's advocate for a second. Mm. So uh, I had the privilege of being at a meeting in the spring at um, the University of Michigan uh, as part of some research being done by the National Science Foundation. And it was a room you, would, I, you were missing from the room, uh, but I, I did my best, Kathy. Um, <laughs> It was a room full of admissions professionals. We had the director of undergraduate admissions. We had the provost. We had um, from seven universities in the Midwest, most of them Michigan. We had, and this was held at University of Michigan. Um, they get over 50,000 applications a year. I know. Uh, you've, I'm sure, experienced some of this at Duke. So. The question is that as an educator, I think, um, or as an administrator, we look at that dynamic between the efficiency of a, a grading system and looking at a transcript or looking at an SAT, for example, um, versus the, the richer system of looking at more data, really understand who, understanding who these humans are, and we, we can't scale it in our minds. Right. So. Um, how do we start to make sense of that problem? Okay. So that's a very real problem. And it's a problem in our country. It's an even bigger problem in other places. Um, several years ago when I taught one of the first massive online open courses, I had students in the class from all over the world, 18,000 students in this online class. And one of my students said, you realize there's nearly 4 million students at my university. You know, how do you scale that, right? Um, um, so one, there's several ways. One, there are, better t there are all kinds of ways to have better tests. I think, and I'm not an expert on this, except for having lived in New York for three years and having several friends whose kids are totally traumatized about the process of going to a high school in this city. Um, some people have said, just give everybody, give every kid the SAT and don't stop all of the craziness that's going on here and just let everybody just so that would save some money. And people that, who don't do well on SATs, think about alternative kinds of um, systems that could be, we're not going to get rid of grading until we have something that is easily looked at, rapid, but we could do it in much more complex ways. So for several years I was involved, and I think that was where mm -hmm. we met, right, it was in badging initiatives. Um, everyone hates the term badging, whatever. I don't care what we call it, micro-credentials, whatever. But ways that students can have verified credentials that test things that aren't necessarily just on a test, but that somebody could look at. And unlike a resume, which you have no idea if they're verified or not, somebody who's been an authority has given them credit for doing something. Maybe it's leadership. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a summer project where they invented uh, a drone. Not that I want to invent drones, but whatever. You know, maybe it's um, uh, you know some other quality that you could actually get some kind of certification for by somebody who in, who institutionally had viability and would still allow you to have a complex view of all of one's skills, 
a much wider range of skills than are currently being tested. It's another problem of testing now is it tends to test for fewer and fewer qualities. Once, for example, public schools couldn't afford arts and musics anymore, anymore, creativity no longer is really a thing that we can test anymore. What about somebody who um, uh, is an artist or has an art show or is involved in the arts? There are ways that we could come up with scalable, uh, easily readable, maybe even machine readable um, grading. We do it for everything but school. Right? If I'm going to a restaurant in New York, I go to Yelp, right? And see what, if I'm buying a book on Amazon, I might look at how many stars are on it. You know, there's all kinds of ways that peers evaluate us. We're living in a world where we evaluate everything. We get data from everything. We find ways to rank data. SEOs on, on Google, right? Not always fair, but there's still, there's many, many complex ways of grading, but we still have a very 19th century way of grading. Um, in a very narrow way of grading what counts as learning. We also know that employers say that the qualities they most want in new employees are increasingly lacking in the people they're hiring, precisely because students spend all their time trying to do well on exams, which don't teach you the things that you need when you're out there in the world having to make judgments for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean just after graduation. It means when you're surfing the dark web, when you're, when you're on social media and suddenly get caught up in a media storm. Um, when, you know, that's what happens on April 22nd, 1993. That's the day the scientists from the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of, North, of Illinois at, at Champaign-Urbana come out to the public and say, we have this thing called the Mosaic 1.0 browser. It's an easy browser. Anyone can use it. And we're going to make it available to you, the world, for free. For corporations, for a little bit of money, for individuals and nonprofits, it's free. And at that moment, when there were 20 websites in the world, suddenly you're giving the world this thing where anyone who has an idea can communicate that idea to anyone else who has an internet connection. Before that, scientists were using um, the internet, but most of us weren't. By the end of the year, 10,000 people um, had websites. There were 10,000 websites in the world, and internet use increased by one estimate 250, I'm sorry, 2,500% in one year. This is a new way of interacting in the world, a huge expansion of human reach. And we're still grading people like Mount Holyoke and the Meatpackers of, 19, of, of 1888. Mm -hmm. right? um, so <clears throat> there's a great story about um, Charles Eliot when he sits for, at the time, Harvard didn't have much of an entrance exam. But what, what there was, it sounds like, he sat and one of the um, portions of the exam was that he had to uh, translate uh, Latin, right? right? A, a small passage right. of Latin that had no context right. in the rest of his life. And, and as I'm reading that, which um, I, I'm thinking, haven't we supplanted one system uh, with no context in one's life for another, a different sort of rote system for uh, spitting back a series of information that would be the, the kind of outputs that colleges might care about. I, mean, I think that's exactly, exactly where we are now. And it's not like any system we come up with now is going to be permanent, because the world changes. And what if, if education isn't for a grade and a diploma, but to prepare you for everything else in life, 
If we really believe that formal education should be about learning and maximizing every potential for learning. It's another thing that I love about community college and um, what my friend Gail Mello, who's president of LaGuardia College, says her job is to find ways to teach the top 100%. And boy, that's a mission, right? Teaching the top 3%, pretty easy, mm -hmm. right? Your job's been done for you. Teaching the top 100%, that's a mission. I love that. It's, it's fantastic. We're gonna, it's we're really gonna, fantastic. We're going to come back to her. So, but, um, yeah. Teaching the top 100% means you take any student where they are and you try to help prepare them for the world they're living in, where, whatever that is, whatever their road is, whatever they want to do in life, whatever they're going to do next, that will change. But if education doesn't change as the world is changing, you've got a terrible mismatch between a rigorous system, a rigid system, that in fact isn't preparing you for the things that you most need in the world. I personally think those things are learning how to learn, mm -hmm learning how to collaborate with other people, learning how to give constructive feedback and take, um, accept constructive feedback, how to take research, original ideas, and somehow just sort out what is the, the right stuff from fake and wrong stuff and compile that into something that's productive and allows you to move forward. Um, um, Many other things too. Empathy. I think empathy yeah. is another one I'd add to that to that list. I want to um, I want to shift a little bit, but before I do, I do want to acknowledge. So so we have uh, members of CUNY Tech meet up here, um, and one of the things that strikes me about this problem, and when I hear the issue of scale come up, is that. Um, that kind of scale, 50,000 applications, um, that kind of data is something that uh, computation does well. Yeah, it absolutely um, does. So the idea that we're not leveraging computation to do that problem, the thing that it doesn't do as well is compassion. Yeah, right? and, <laughs> that's for and sure. And that we have not identified, <laughs> right, that we have not identified the, the uh, inequity in a system that measures those who can afford a tutor for that test and those who cannot right. um, is, is totally. um, startling. There's, um, uh, I, don't do I don't have this myself, but I've seen a slide presentation where somebody puts up a slide of SAT scores, distribution of SAT scores from lowest to highest. Nash a map of the United States where the top SAT scores are. They take down that slide and they put up another map, wealth in school districts. They take that map up, put up a map that's not labeled and ask the audience, which map are you looking at? And of course no one can tell because they're almost identical. Right? In other words, our, t our SAT scores map in pretty remarkable ways. Mm. Lonnie Guineer has a whole book called The Tyranny of Meritocracy where she talks about this. Pretty incredible ways on um, how many how many resources you have that you can put behind cram, helping your student cram for these t for these tests? That's sad. Yeah. That's very very sad. That's not a that's not a test of anything. That's a replication of inequality. That's a resegregation of of America 
beyond Jim Crow. We talk about the new Jim Crow in terms of the prison industrial complex, and that's a whole other issue because that's related to how people do in public education, who makes it through public education. Um, but there's also a total Jim Crow resegregation of our school systems, and testing exacerbates that. You don't want college. College used to be called or thought of as the engine, the great engine of social mobility. And that's one of the amazing things about CUNY. It's still on tests of, of um, colleges in the country that are best for social mobility. Six of the top 10 last year, I guess two years in a row, um, were CUNY campuses. That's, that should make us very, very proud. That's the best investment New York taxpayers could possibly, possibly make, that you have a system that's still a relatively affordable system. Wish it were free. Um, and um, that's a whole, we're not going to get into yeah, that. Yeah. That's a different program. I, I, different program. I hope we can add a few hours to our time <laughs> here. Because I have, I have, I have questions on that. Um, I do, I want to come back to um, the issue of doing, uh, so the design of learning environments, yes. right? Um, this is something, a topic that, that um, likely everyone in here has some connection to. Temi, uh, everyone, I'm going to do the men in black thing where you all forget where Temi goes to college. Uh, but when we were talking, you're a third year, although technically a senior, I got it. Yes. Um, you said that in your years at the school that you go to, um, that you've had about two professors that were memorable or who you feel like took the job of teaching seriously. Yeah. Um, that's, if I'm, if I'm right about how many classes you're taking a semester, that's somewhere in the ballpark of 25 classes? 25, 30. Okay, so 25 or 30 classes, two professors serious about teaching. Um, well, I, I would say um, maybe all of these professors were serious about teaching. I just do not believe they were good teachers. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the, the two, three professors that I remember the most, um, their, their teaching methods were, because there, there's this tendency for professors to just talk at you. Um, and when that happens, most of the time you just don't come to class, right? Like if, if someone is just spitting back at you uh, what you've read last night, then there really isn't a need or want to attend that course. And the professor Can you stop there? Why don't you need to attend that class? Uh, because I can just read it. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> um, so uh, so uh, the, pro the professors who um, I admire the most, um, they, they presented new information, right? They challenged um, the information that we had already sort of read and um, deconstructed. They, they encouraged conversation. Um, there, were, there were questions, and we turned to people in the classroom, and we spoke to them. Um, and I can literally only think of three classes where that happened. And those are classes, coincidentally, where I remember the most. Hmm, of course. It's not coincidental. <laughs> we know that when you actively learn, you know, when you actually take content and apply it, when you're <laughs> called upon to be the teacher, in a sense, that's what you learn. Right. Right. And we're going to, those cards and pencils, we're going to do some active learning um, exercises as a group. Because um, I, I figure, you know, I'm a full professor. I've got tenure. 
Um, I actually believe that tenure is incredibly important, but if you don't do one outrageous thing, important thing that helps somebody life every year, you should have your tenure taken away. I believe in move it or use it, move it or use it or lose it tenure. That, um, and I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek here, but because I have tenure, I tend to do the most radical, some of the most radical teaching experiments. Um, but not just me. When I first came to the Graduate Center, I team taught with the former sainted, amazing president of the Graduate Center, Bill Kelly, who was on leave that year. He had just been chancellor of the whole darn system. He was on a research leave. And I said, Bill, how would you like to team teach with me and teach the craziest class anyone's ever taught? And Bill, because he's an amazing human being, said, yeah, I'd like to do that. He said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to go into class. And then I'm going to say, class? This is the former chancellor of the system, the acting chancellor of the system. And you're going to say, and this is Kathy Davidson, who we recruited here. And then we're going to say goodbye. And we're going to come back 45 minutes later and ask the students in that class to have created a class that's going to change their lives and ours. <laughs> we scaffolded it a bit. There were post giant post-its around the room that had the schedule. Because if students are trying to figure out, is that spring break? Oh my gosh, it doesn't work. You need to do some scaffolding of the basic structure. We had some topics. The class was the history and future of higher education. Uh, no, it was called mapping the futures of higher education. Students applied to get in the class. And the one requirement for the class was they had to be teaching at CUNY. Our students on the best fellowships are all teaching out at a CUNY campus independently, not assisting other people. They're teaching. So that they're learning the most exciting ideas. And they're out there teaching those ideas to, our, to beginning students. So all of our students had to be teachers. We had everybody from a computer scientist, art historian, music, uh, social science, political science, education, 15 students. And they created this, an amazing class. We came back. We said, we'll be back in 45 minutes. We came back in 45 minutes. And a student pushed us away. He said, go away. Yeah. Bill said, what do we do now? I said, we go away. And I said, How, when do we come back? They said, come back in 10 minutes. We came back in 10 minutes. And people were sitting there like the Cheshire cat. <laughs> and there around the room was an incredible course. And what they did was every, there was a different topic each term, each, each two weeks. There was a group of four students that would work on that topic. The first one was assessment. And the one rule we set for them was they couldn't teach us, like you were saying, are the bad teachers. Where someone lectures at you, they had to do something each class for us, the graduate students, that made us think in a different way. So they, we were not only reading content, we were absorbing that content in a different way. We were doing some kind of project. That week, each of those graduate students went out to their CUNY classes and tried the same thing with their undergraduates, an art history class, an introduction to computer science class, a database class. And we made a tool. We used um, Academic Commons and made an adaptation of it, Commons in a Box, that put together all the 365 students that were at the 15 different classes taught by our graduate students so they could give us feedback on whether they thought that method was good. Well, needless to say, the students, the undergraduates, were going crazy. They were every day saying, well, I think that might be good for history. But as a computer scientist, I would do. Those undergraduates were learning so much by having the position where they were giving critiques of the methods they were being taught in their introductory classes by graduate students who were being taught by the former chance, acting chancellor of the system. right? Think about the power that is, but also think about what that is for learning for the student. 
I could go on forever to say what the undergraduates came up with in those classes. What the, we were teaching graduate students, we were teaching undergraduates amazing things that they were doing as undergraduates. And can I tell one? Please. The student who was teaching art history said to her students, how can we do something, what we, we call it a public contribution to knowledge. I never, ever, ever have a student write a paper for me. If it's worth writing, it should have a bigger audience. So on Haystack, the online open organization that I was one of the co-founders of, anybody can publish. And we have students publish their work there or in another place. But she said to her students in this art history class at Brooklyn College, what would be a good public contribution to knowledge from the introductory class you've learned this semester on modern American art? Mm. They said, what if we came up with a list of all the free art that anyone in Brooklyn can see this semester in, in the borough of Brooklyn. And what if we made flyers with the times, the dates of the art, the, t the name of the art in different languages mm. and put Korea in lang ones in Korean and the, in the food truck, in a Korean food truck, and the other ones in bodegas, and other ones around, so that people could take advantage of it. And what if we had students that would be docents at art on special times? So somebody who spoke Mandarin could be a docent for a Chinese art exhibit that was happening in Brooklyn that semester, and anybody could come and they would be a docent. They also were given, um, the, the professor, the student, who's a graduate student in my class, gave her students special credit if they could bring to an art museum five people who had never been to an art museum before. Hmm. We've got the research on this. Love that. Free public art, the people who don't go to free public art are poor people, right? There's a reason there's those lions in front of art museums, right? They look like only rich people are allowed here. <laughs> so people wanted to know what you wear to an art museum, right? And these students were taking, and often they were taking their grannies, right? Their grannies could go to an art museum with their grandchild who was a college student. That was a huge source of pride. Mm. And it was, happened to be when the uh, Kahinda Wiley show was up at the Brooklyn Museum. Brooklyn, he does pictures of uh, beautiful, detailed, monumental um, portraits of street people but as generals. So there would be like grandpa and grandmother posing like generals in front of the Kahinda Wiley with their kid who was a college student at CUNY. It's incredible. It was incredible, incredible. You know, they changed lives. You know, we left for 45 minutes, said come up with a class that changes our life. Mm. They also changed their students' lives. It's a one, one of my favorite quotes from the book on this theme uh, is short. If we professors can be replaced by a computer screen, <laughs> hate that. we should be. Uh, which I can't imagine, or you know, you. Oh, people you, hate that I can't so imagine much. you getting lots of high fives in the faculty uh, lounge. Is there? A faculty what lounge? I mean by that is not that we should put everything online, but if we're not doing anything that you can't get faster and cheaper online, get rid of us, right? Which is a challenge to every professor to be at least as lively as a computer screen. People say we must abolish, we must ban laptops in, in the classroom. Maybe. Maybe not. What are you doing with the laptops? And are you up there acting like a human laptop? I mean, I didn't need a laptop in college to sit there bored as I could be reading yesterday's newspaper, mm -hmm. right? You don't need a laptop to distract you if you're bored. 
But if you're intensely engaged in your own education, and you know that that education is giving you something that's meaningful to you, you're not going to be on your laptop, right? You're going to be, you're going to be paying attention. You're going to be figuring out a way to have um, flyers in Chinese so that people can go to an art exhibit in Brooklyn. That's right. Um, you, you talk. I, I want everybody to read the book, so I'm not going to ask all of my questions, because you should go and check it out. But you talk a lot about, um, and I love this, that there was both um, a major theme around technophobia <laughs> and a major theme around technophilia. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, and I think that that's so important, uh, so much so that the title of this podcast is no such thing for that very reason. Um, the idea was that, uh, you know, too often, especially in the world of technology and education, uh, folks view the new thing coming in as a panacea for all of our, our problems. And this theme came up in the book a lot. Um, so I, I love that you did that. Um, you call education technology one of the two promises uh, of reform that has sort of failed us. Yeah. Uh, say more about that. Yeah, and it's very, uh, my, my original field is history of technology, and I wrote a book about the last information age. The information age that happened when mass uh, steam-powered presses, steam-powered manufacturing came in, machine-powered uh, machine presses, I'm sorry, steam-powered presses and, and uh, machine-made pencils and other writing instru instruments. And when books become cheap and magazines become cheap, and instead of a family just having the family Bible and maybe a Psalter, a hymnal, you could have novels, popular novels, cheaply printed, terrible popular novels that weren't in any card catalog. That's what my first book is called, Revolution in the Word. It was about the kinds of cheap popular reading the first generation of American readers are reading at the time of the, actually, the Constitution. And in fact, the very same printer who published the preamble to the Constitution published in the same month the preamble to the first American novel, an anonymous, scrappy, pretty awful novel as literature, that was a protest against the Constitution. <laughs> it was dedicated to the women of United Columbia who got left out of the Constitution, right? So I was very interested in the relationship of technology um, to culture and to education. What did Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Hamilton say about this new productivity, this new fangled thing called the mass-produced novel? It was distracting. It made you stupid. Um, it made you licentious. Um, anything that people are saying about the internet, people said about the novel, right? And that's one thing to say all of the things that the new technology does is awful and it's gonna destroy your brain, it's gonna destroy your morals, it's gonna destroy society, it's gonna make you lonely and asocial, or it's gonna cure every problem in the world. Thomas Friedman, the, the New York Times uh, uh, columnist and uh, best-selling novelist, literally said that when um, Coursera, a for-profit company started by two um, uh, Stanford computer scientists um, where professors like me stood up there on a video and lectured to the world, MOOCs, massive online um, uh, open courseware, MOOCs were going to end global poverty. It didn't, shh, it didn't happen. <laughs> that was in 2014, it didn't happen. We still have global poverty. 
Um, people have these crazy ideas that technology is somehow not about humans, but does all of these things for us, automates our lives, automates the serious decisions and the problems uh, of our lives, either for good or for ill. Mm -hmm. Both of those give technology way too much way too much power. Yeah. There's a moment in the 19th century, finally, some of it catalyzed by a novel. It's actually in the early 20th century where Upton Sinclair writes The Jungle about the meatpacking industry, where suddenly people are like, whoa, we can't just trust everything to mass production, and we've got to have some rules. We've got to have some labor laws. We have to have some sanitation laws. We have to take control of this technology. I think we're at that moment now. I think we now know, whoa, 1993 was a long time ago. And this technology has some amazing things, but it has some pretty darn scary things going on. I just read something by a brilliant critic, and I'm going to mess up her last name. I'm going to mess up her first name, too. I can't remember. She's a young professor at the University of Washington. And the punchline of her article, it was out in Wired magazine this, this week, was that basically in St. Petersburg, Russia, there's two people sitting next to each other, and they're churning out articles that make people hate each other. One is taking an ideology, what happened, the one that was happening this week that she was using as one, or somebody else was using as an example was somebody took one of those, I can't stand those pink pussy hats, but anyway, I was in the march, but I hate, didn't wear the hat. But um, put one of those pink pussy hats on a statue of Harriet Tubman. And uh, a number of African Americans were really offended that this stupid pink hat was on, you know, one of the great heroes um, of abolitionism. I totally agree with that. What, what they were able to chart was in St. Petersburg was somebody defending putting a pussy hat on Harriet Tubman's statue in New York because that showed that, you know, we're following in her footsteps and somebody else saying that's racist and horrible. And there they are churning things out, making arguments together to make people hate each other as much as possible. What a weird world we're in, right? The two people in Russia are, are, are literally sitting next to each other churning art out things to make our democracy not work, to undermine what some people are saying was the biggest and most multiracial um, social action in American history, and to suddenly turn that into a debate over whether it's an important statue should or shouldn't be wearing a pussy hat, right? You can manufacture that. That's what social media can do. We need to understand that in a profound way. We also need to understand labor laws, which we're starting to understand because Uber did such a bad job of it. But there's a million Ubers, right? I think Apple pays 9% of its known, known profits as income tax mm. to the state right now. Think about, I believe I've heard, I think I've got this right, that the offshore money right now in Bermuda is larger than the combined GDP of Japan and I'm not going to remember exactly, three of three major nations. Now taxed, right? What are, what, we've got to get control of this. We've got a lot of things on just about every level, every level of our life, from our affective life to our economic systems uh, that need to be under control. And we've got to, that's one of the things we have to be educating people for now. I want to take those classes. I want to learn more about that and how to fight back. But we all do. Amen. Um, I heard others in the uh, 
in the room. So I want to get to the active learning. I have one more uh, sort of place I want to land us, I hope, before we get to some think, pair, share. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to the community college points. And um, for the, uh, especially for my, I am not a millennial, but for my millennial friends in the room who are here, especially from uh, tech organizations, um, there is new attention to this idea of, and maybe it's not new attention, I'm guessing for you, to uh, this idea of first principles, right? The, the sort of axioms that guide other things, when we design something or build something with, uh, especially as it involves computation, uh, where did we start? What was the sort of kernel that led to other things? And, and uh, this is going someplace, I, I hope. Um, here's the quote from your book. Nearly a quarter of those with associates degrees earn more than the median earnings of those with bachelor's degrees. Community colleges rank higher than elite four-year universities if the standard is not selectivity, but what's known as social mobility, uh, the social mobility index, a measure that calculates the difference between the income level of one's family upon entering college and the income of one that one achieves at graduation. Uh, you have this amazing president at LaGuardia Community College who says, we take the top 100%. So, so there's, a, there's a stark difference, I think, in this first principle between Harvard and LaGuardia Community College, which is the, the one starts with the human, one starts with the ego and the reputation of the institution. Um, my question for you is, what are the practical things that schools and those of us who care about K-12 and higher education, we can start to advocate for to shift the paradigm from one first principle to the other. Yeah. So um, I'm going to do a little bit of a background, a backward answer to that question, because this is a first principle. The lecture series that the program I co-founded, fo not co-founded, I founded here at, the grad, at, at CUNY is, uh, the Futures Initiative, our lecture series called The University Worth Fighting For, because one, we believe and are dedicated to massive change of the university as we know it. And two, fighting for the university as we know it. Because every, CUNY is rare, right? Um, very few urban uh, 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 cities in America have anything equivalent to this vast half a million full and part-time student system that's still relatively affordable here um, in, in, at CUNY. State after state after state is abdicating uh, its support of public higher education. This isn't true worldwide, right? In Germany, higher education is free. In many, many first world countries, higher education is free. In this country, it gets more and more and more expensive every year. So that in some states, we have this ludicrous situation where the only way states can afford, universities can afford to operate is by accepting fewer students from their state and accepting more students from another state that have to pay out-of-state tuition. That's just a reductio ad absurdum of anything, right? We also know that, and I don't have the figures in my head, but that every taxpayer dollar that's spent on higher education means later income from taxes. Somebody's not on, on welfare. Somebody's not relegated to the hideous prison industrial complex. It's an incredible investment in the future of our 
society and in, in smart young people who can help save us from this mess that we've bequeathed to them, right? Um, so we both have to support public education vehemently. Princeton, I think, is number one in the country for the income level of its students and the lowest of all the major universities in social mobility because it, stu its students make the most when they come out of the university and they made the most going into the university. Another one of those, those um, that's what the social mobility I I index is, as you said. Um, but if we're going to have a society that actually understands this complex world we're in, and I, I think higher education is more necessary than ever in understanding an incredibly complex world that we live in right now. And I know every era thinks it's complex, and it is. I mean, you know, you know that changes. And we need that kind of um, specialized, precise, rigorous training. We have to fight for it because it's under attack everywhere. Um, the, recently, there's been lots of surveys about Republicans thinking higher education isn't worth it anymore. And I always say, yeah, and let me ask one of those Republican parents, so great, your kid's not going to go to college? No, no, my kid's going to go to college, but I don't believe in higher education, mm -hmm. right? You know, I mean, that's a, there's a huge discrepancy between the ideology, which is becoming more and more prevalent that college isn't worth it, and the way people fight very hard for their kids' education. I think we all need to fight very hard for all public education, especially now, uh, K through 12 as well, um, but also for an education that's more suited to helping students in a world where you can have an idea and communicate that to anybody else who has an internet connection, understand what it means to generate ideas, be responsible for those ideas, understand what the impact of those ideas are, and understand the impact of this insane avalanche of information on everyday life, right? I used to teach when I was at Duke, I taught with a famous um, behavioral economist, Dan Ariely. If you haven't read his books, they're very witty and very smart. Predictably Irrational is one of his books that basically trick us. I mean, they're all books, and he would do this going into class. He'd say, today I'm going to get 85% of the students to say X. <laughs> and he could set up the question, so 85% said X. And basically, we think we know, and we're in control of our lives, and we think we know what we're paying attention to, and we think we know um, what we believe and what we do. And there's such a discrepancy between what we actually do and what we say we do. And there's been many, 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 many tests um, that show that. Basically, everything we do on the internet now, people have been studying our behavior in micro levels. That's more of that online com computational ability. They know more about what's going to make us click um, than we know. Mm -hmm. um, there's a brilliant theorist of the internet, um, uh, she's Turkish, Zeynep Tufeki, who says, we've invented a dystopia just so that we can, cl can click on more ads? And basically, that's the world we're living in. You know, we're, we have people who use our own behavior, what we click on, not what we say what we're clicking on, but what we're clicking on. They track that in order to trap us into buying garbage, right? Buying stuff, right? 10 ways. <laughs> who, who else falls for that, right? The 10 top ways, and you go to the site to find out the 10 top ways that are going to save your life. You know, 
Yeah, you choke on me to 10 things better than a Heimlich man maneuver that can save your life today. And you get there and it's those horrible slideshows. <laughs> what are those slideshows? Every time you click, mm -hmm. you're sending a whole trail of ads after you. Not just for that clicking moment, but for, the, for I think, time immemorial. You're going to be followed by bots that are going to be trying to sell you things. And that are checking your behavior and know that you're susceptible to clicking on things that talk about medical emergencies. So guess what? In your internet feed, you're going to get more medical emergencies, right? The AI, the artificial intelligence, knows more about us than our intelligence knows about us. That's why we need a better educational system in, a sh in, the, sh in the short run, but also to improve the system of... Um, a recent study showed that 74% by the Pew people in um, DC showed that 74% of the new job uh, creation from 2014 to the present was in contingent labor. Mm. We're all worried, and we should be worried in higher education about adjunct faculty, contingent faculty who are paid just by the course. Over half of courses now in college are taught by contingent faculty. It's not just contingent faculty. We live in a contingent world, right? We, if you have, have you been to, if you go to CUNY Central, which is where I was last week, Half of the building that CUNY Central is in on 42nd Street is now WeWork, co-working facilities. And there are now new online courses being put in WeWork facilities so people can learn the jobs and be hired by companies that will then often pay their tuitions in order that they work as part-time contingent laborers, no benefits no, for those companies. Mm. That's the old company store of the 19th century, right? That's the internet version of, I owe my soul to the company store, right? You know, that's like that old protest song about people who buy products from the little store that they're working on as sharecroppers or as um, other kinds of laborers in order that they're, they're not able to get off um, that, that treadmill. Mm -hmm. We're, um, and that's the world we're back in. We need to understand that better and regulate it. We need new labor laws for the world we're living in now. Just starting. It's just starting. And we're right on time. You know, it really is the same point in the history of technology in the cycle where people say, technology isn't all bad or all good. Technology is us. Yep. We have to control it. Yep. We, technology should be helping us. What do we need to do to make sure technology helps us? Amen. Before we uh, talk amongst uh, ourselves, if it's okay with you, Kathy, I want to give Timmy the last word um, Please. For, for the time being. Um, Timmy, you were about to, when you uh, started at Queens College, you were about to go to Hampshire College. Uh, you got into Vassar. Wow. Uh, you got in at, uh, I think I have the quote right, pretty much every place where I applied. Yeah, and I was um, waitlisted at Brown. Waitlisted at Brown, sorry. Suckers. Those, you didn't want to go there. Um, Fools. <laughs> What's wrong with so, Brown? So, um, so my point is this. You, you clearly were um, a, a good uh, student. You knew how to work that system. You then told me the story about um, going and finding out what it takes to take out the loan to go to Hampshire College. Yeah. And um, 
there's a whole chapter of the book on the cost of college, and I hope that that's part of our Q&A. Um, but we're not going to talk too deeply about it. The thing that really intrigued me was your perspective about the marketing of college ah. and how you made a really specific and deliberate choice to go and enroll at Queens College because you told me that you felt like um, kids your age are being sold a version of what college is as an experience that you looked at the cost and just didn't think uh, the two matched up. Can you, uh, to, the, to the best of your ability, to sort of bring, that, um, bring those opinions back to life? I think that's so important for people right. to hear. Um, so yeah, I, I made the choice to go to a state university instead of going to a private one. Um, I, I was dead set on going to Hampshire. I really liked the school. I went and visited. Um, I had received a substantial amount of um, uh, scholarship money, but in the end, I would have still had to take out, I think, 30, 20 to 30K um, a year or something. And it, I think it, there was this one point in the summer um, before I was going to school, and I just started looking at like this idea of taking out loans. I think I had started like really started sitting down and looking at it. And I, I just I just said to myself, well, shit, <laughs> like, this is this is real. This is actual life. Um, and so at the last minute, I went to Queens College on um, they, they have these days where you can just go with your SAT scores and your transcript and they admit you. So I went to Queens College and I got admitted on spot. Um, and that's where I have remained. Um, and I, despite my not having went to Hampshire um, and you know had the quintessential college experience, dorming, um, uh, drinking, binge drinking. <laughs> like, um, you 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 uh, lamented not. What did you say? You said. You know, uh, there's there are these lawns, and you throw a disc on the lawn. You lamented your frisbee. Oh uh, uh, yeah, like, I can't I can't throw a frisbee on the great lawn. Like that's <laughs> it's hor- I, There's no one playing guitar. You know, uh, like, like on like in front yeah. of the Verdana. I don't know. Um, this, this and right. This is the this is the image of college that you're sold since you're young, right? You, you turn on the movies, um, and there's people um, TPing. Uh, Greek houses and, and the like. Um, and so th- there's so many people I know who went to these schools halfway across the country and took out these crazy loans. Um, and here I am, like in my, the, my final year of school, and I have less than $5,000 worth wow. of loans. Um, and I know friends who are $100,000 in debt just for their undergrad degree. Um, and so they will be working for the rest of their lives to pay off those loans. And possibly in a field they don't want. Exactly. Because they have to have a high-paying high field to pay off to their loans. Right. And, so you, and, have a, you bought yourself an incredible freedom. I did. I did. And in your book, um, you, you mentioned, because you, you, uh, you interviewed Tessie Codems, um, and she's done research into for-profit universities right. and how um, most of the depth in the United States um, is held by uh, the, the, stu- the, the lowest performing schools and by students right. who, who make the least. I know, it's terrible. Um, yeah, it's, and so, it's so, so what, you're, what you're seeing now more so is, um, I, was, I was watching the television the other day 
And I could swear, I saw like an ad for like Columbia or Harvard or Brown or something. It was so weird. I had never seen that in my life. It was like watching, you know, uh, an ad for like the University of Phoenix or something. But instead, it was like a well-respected school. So what you're seeing now is all of these public and private universities increasingly using um, methods uh, that traditionally only for-profit universities have used to reel in students. Um, they're using lead generators. They're, purchase, they're purchasing information um, about oh, per yeah, prospective sure. students. So what do you think that says right, about the, our education system or about the future of education? Well, one thing it says is many of the most elite universities can charge more and more money every year because their admission, the top universities are getting more applicants than ever the more people are applying every year to the most expensive universities than ever. I think Stanford's now less than 4% acceptance rate. Why not charge $70,000 a year, mm. right. right? But what that also does, because we have this hierarchical system where every school is graded, every other school then has to keep up with that in some way. And, key, and that becomes the norm the experience on the lawn, all of those things become the, the dorm, all of those things become the norm of what college is, even though that's such a minority of, what, of the actual students um, who are in college um, today. But that's the fantasy, right? The fantasy is of the, the city on the hill, the, the ivory tower, the, the pristine world. And, you know, I, was, I taught at a university like that for, for many, many years, and there were many wonderful things about it. There were also things, I, I never, never, never say, I don't like to say bad things about a place um, where I thrived for many years and where I had wonderful students and certain kinds of students came to me. There is definitely a difference between a student like yourself who has made the kind of decisions you've made based on a sort of an uh, appreciation of what you want in the rest of your life versus a student who, either because they have a wealthy family background or because they're going to go into a job that will um, help them pay off their loans. You just, you can feel it. The number one <laughs> occupation of Harvard graduates now is, and this is a little bit metaphorical, but is the equivalent of taking care of the dossiers, the financial portfolios of other Harvard graduates. I mean, and that's a total over, I mean, that's a, a snotty, and, and that's not me, I'm quoting somebody else. I mean, actually, Malcolm Gladwell, who said he won't ever, ever give money anymore to either of his alma maters, Harvard or Yale, because basically he might as well just give a donation to a hedge fund. Because <laughs> um, the people that run the endowments, I mean, Harvard now, if it were a country, would be the 18th largest GDP in the, in the world. Right, that's how big its endowment is. Mm -hmm. And running that GD, the people who run the Harvard Corporation make incomparably more money than the president of Harvard. Harvard. So it's like this huge financial institution and has many more people employed too that runs this famous, fabulous, incredible university. But that also changes everything. I mean, nobody who teaches at Harvard, who's a serious scholar at Harvard, wants to be teaching students most of whom are going to go on to manage the portfolio of other Harvards. You know, that's not education. That's not even good for any institution, right? That that becomes, and there's nothing wrong if you want to go into being a financial manager. That's fine. But that certainly can't be what our whole society, someone's got to make something, 
right? I mean, do we really only want a world of people who tend the money of other people? Mm -hmm. I mean, that has to be an, there's got to be an end game there somewhere. That can't be, that can't be a society, right? I mean, um, another thing, um, I get very annoyed when people say college, people who uh, graduate from college now don't, we don't need to go to college anymore because college graduates don't earn as much as they used to earn. Some of that is because of this crazy Uberized labor market. Some of it is because 60% of college students are now women. Mm. Right? Majority of women go into four professions that are the so-called feminized professions. Teaching, social work, health professions, even doctors actually now, but it, health professions, and, and, and um, teaching social and librarianship. Not the top earning professions, right? There is now a teaching shortage of one kind or another in 50 out of 50 American states. Capitalism teaches us that teaching should be paying like bazillions of dollars, right? Teacher shortages in every state, supply and demand, right? Basic uh, capitalist principles, no. Hasn't raised teaching salaries across the board at all, right? Will you? These are another punchline. Those are social problems. Those aren't educational problems. Right. Those are social problems we need to be paying attention to. I think this is, with all of those many cliffhangers, <laughs> a wonderful place uh, for you to lead us in uh, Think Pair Share. Okay. So you all have uh, this phenomenal technology: uh, machine-made paper, machine-made pencils. And um, what we're going to do is a really quick exercise. I, I now do this in my weekly business meetings with my team. Um, one of my graduate students was at a department meeting that was going very, very badly. And she did something that I wouldn't have been brave enough to do as a graduate student. She said to the department chair, it was a full meeting of faculty and students, no one's answering your questions. What if we did a little, um, uh, uh, what did she call it, workshopping of questions together for five minutes and then presented you with ideas? And he was like, well, what the hell? No one else is paying attention for five, let's do it for five minutes. And it works. This is called an inventory method. I do it in every single class period of every class I teach and in every lecture. There has to be one time in every class where somebody gets to come up with an idea of their own and share it with somebody else. I've done this with 6,000 people in the Philadelphia 76, IB teachers in the Philadelphia 76ers auditorium. I can do it in, in groups of, of, of five, but I really believe and in any meeting, there should be one moment where everybody gets a chance to hear themselves think, to write something out, to present it to somebody else, and hear somebody else attend to them. That, to me, is what active learning is, is somebody attends to you. So we've talked about many things today. 90 seconds, super efficient. And, but, but somebody else will be reading this. This is a three-part thing. Just write on your card. The one thing we talked about today that you, that's bugging you the most, that you either want to ask to the whole group or that you think you know the answer to, but just some topic, just one thing, a topic that's really bugging you right now from what you've heard from our conversation from the last uh, how hour, long? And a half. hour and a half. 90 seconds, just one thing that you really would like to talk about further or that you disagree with or that you want to know more about, 90 seconds, really quick, but write it out because you're going to be 
Uh, there's going to be another I'll other part of this. I'll keep our time. Perfect. Excuse me, can I have your attention, please? Okay. So I love to say I could leave the room right now. The energy, the excitement, the feeling there, that's what education should be, right? And we have lots of data that educational sociologists know that if a year from now somebody says, what was this lecture about? The thing you're most likely to remember this lecture was about is what you wrote on your card. And if you came up with a something with somebody else, and I say to you, and which one of the two of you actually had the thing that you read to the group, you will, 90% of you will say, oh, I did, right? We not only remember what we use, what we talk about, what we discuss, learning is social. We tend to remember us as being the originator of ideas. We've got, I mean, witness, people who, who study witnesses jury, and, jury, you know, and jury duty have all kinds of research on this. Right, how easy it is to convince people they saw something, they did something, they know something that they didn't. Okay. What we're going to do now really quickly is just really quickly go through and have you shout out, just go around what's on your, what, your, what your team came up with on your card. So in pairs, just, just say. Okay. Comparative education, which countries are preparing university students for the changing world and how? Great question. Um, just so um, I'll just read my question. So is it realistic to think the damage done in K-12 through system and what you refer to as abusive can be offset in higher education? Perfect. How do we move beyond where we are now? Because we think that the old education system works because it has worked. How do we move beyond that? That's great. Thank you. How can education free itself from credentialization as its purpose, or what kinds of credentials could be used in more creative ways? Great. Um, we came up with um, how can we um, assess students of the new generation? While education is being reformed, what happens to the students that will be failed until then? Wow. Why doesn't a new school just come out applying this needed new style of education? Students fail at learning because they are not taught how to learn from elementary school. How can we fix this and, and at what cost? You are the best audience on earth. My God, these are great questions. <laughs> How can we transfer the progress of diversity within the higher education system to the workforce? Wow. Mm. <clears throat> Will the education system provide more expanse in the field to compete against everyday employees before graduation um, as the price increases? What will education look like in an automated world? The largest profession in 48 states is truck driver. That's gone in 10 years. In a system that already generates so much debt and costs so much, how do we use or change education to help people adapt to societal change? So how could we uh, change the perception uh, of students regarding college? So one, uh, how 
diverse and welcoming it is, and uh, and on another dimension, how they perceive tests, which for me I perceive as uh, unfairly demonized sometimes. Um, how can you have magnet schools to help specialized students without it creating a hierarchy? How do we bring more human values into education? And how do we focus on uh, our students finding meaning and purpose in, in their lives and, and work? How do we change the outcome-oriented mentality in the current education system? How can we square the discomfort uh, we're hearing about what the future of work appears to be and preparing students for viable careers? Why college? If it's going to be revolutionized, what will remain similar? Why do you still call it college? Mm -hmm. what, what, what will be consistent, and what's the essence that has to stay? Mm. How can we systemically shift to alternatives to standardized testing used to portray and measure student success? We live in an educational system that is extremely test-driven, as if grades determine our fate. How do we really prepare students for the real world? <clears throat> How does uh, current meritocratic, quote-unquote, system, system that emphasizes meritocracy, uh, intersect with existing power structures and reinforce those power structures? And how does that intersect with a global competitive situation where certain cultures overemphasize test performance relative to other countries. Mm -hmm. If ESAP is one of the solutions, why is not for everyone and for every major at CUNY? Mm -hmm. How can any type of a static metric like a grade be used to describe a person's potential? We need to consider how people perform differently in different contexts so that even people, for example, with mental disabilities or mental problems can succeed. Technology is changing the human life. How can we manage the tech and teach at times? So why an inventory method works is one, you all heard the same conversation, but not everybody has the same questions, right? It almost feels like every question could have been its own two-hour conversation. And that, to me, is the purpose of education, to have those conversations. I have some answers, not all the answers. I think in any room, my students have never once failed me. I've been doing this for a decade now. In any room, there's far more knowledge, far more insight, far more, far more perceptivity, far more um, awareness than ever comes out in the normal one-way version of communication. You get a sampling of the three students who were those students that always got rewarded for being the best students, which often means most mirroring the values of their teacher. And often, and we've got the data on this too, the race and gender of their teacher, especially in higher education. For all the sort of higher education is liberal, right? Professors are all liberals. There are fewer women and people of color in the professorate now than there were 30 years ago. And, you can, and demographically, 
higher education is not different than Fortune 400 companies, right? One of the reasons is a system that rewards those three people that raise their hand and never hears um, from anyone else. And in fact, it's, and this is what you said so brilliantly, Demi, is telling those other students, the silent students, that they're failures. That's a horrible human waste. Uh, I don't know how you want to end it. I want to just um, say, for my part, thank you for being such an amazing collection of people that you would spend time when you have many, many, many other things you could be spending time on by being here, and that you brought so much intelligence and energy and caring to this conversation. I feel very, very honored. Very I honored. couldn't have said it better. My thanks to Kathy Davidson. The book is The New Education. I hope everyone will go and read the book. I will say before we close that I read a lot of nonfiction. And the book is actually beautifully written. Yay. Uh, oh my god, I worked so hard at that. It's not <laughs> that often that you read nonfiction that is as interested in pulling the research and making the points as it is in doing them in a sort of poetic and interesting way. And this book does that, and I'm not being paid. So um, read The New Education. Thank you both for your time. Temi, this is uh, not our last conversation. I hope uh, we can find a way to continue our study sessions. Um, everyone, thank you, as Kathy said, for all your time. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This podcast was produced in partnership with City University of New York's Master's Program in Youth Studies at SPS. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us on the web at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats.